0: Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased to have with me today Dr. Xiao Wu to tell us all about her just published book from Stanford University Press titled Birth of the Geopolitical Age, Global Frontiers and the Making of Modern China, which is a really interesting book that does a whole bunch of things. And I think for me, most fascinatingly, ties a lot of things together that maybe we don't think of as being related to each other. Um, The book focuses from the 1850s to the middle of the 20th century in a lot of ways, looking not just at China, looking at China and a whole bunch of other places that tie it together. Um, So I think there's a lot that this book contributes to historians of the time period, historians of the region, but also historians of ideas, of diplomacy, of intellectual history. So, Shelyn, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast to tell us all about it. Thank you, Miranda, for having me. Before we dive into the book, would you mind introducing yourself a little bit and explaining why you decided to write this?
1: Yes. um, So my name is Shelyn Wu, and I am a historian of modern China and a historian of science at Lehigh University. This book started out, as with many things, with kind of just a nagging little question that came up in the course of my readings I was looking at a map of the People's Republic of China and I was thinking that, you know, it really covers most of the Qing empire. In the last several decades, we had a trend in new Qing history and we have Qing historians, including people like Pamela Crossley, talk about how uh, the Qing empire was built upon this multi-ethnic nature of the empire. But in the 20th century China, a lot of the discussion in academic circles has been about nationalism. So how do you account for this overlap in the map, but at the same time in this divergence in how people talk about this territory? Uh, so that's what set me off. And I started to look into it. And then as with many things, it's kind of like this quick quicksand you know you kind of sink into it and it goes takes you from one thing to another to another
0: yeah that makes a lot of sense um i think lots of good books start with kind of a hang on i don't understand that that's kind of weird let me poke at that and see what happens um and i think hearing you talk about kind of what started you on this that makes so much sense why i found the book so interesting because i've also wondered that as a child learning kind of as you said those two bits of history here's the map of the prc but oh wait also it was a ching empire and it's like hang on what those sound so different um so it makes it's great to see a book that helps explain uh, that and many other things. Um, and one of the ways that you do this in the book is by a very useful term, geomodernity. Can you take us through what you mean by this and how you use it?
1: Well, one of the reasons why I coined the term is because I see in a lot of places these days, people use the term geopolitics. And in my research, this term is actually um, coined at the turn of the 20th century by a Swedish Germanophile political scientist, Rudolf Schellen. And it really circulated during the interwar period. So I thought that's interesting that here is this term that's only coined in the 20th century. And part of the reason why it was coined then is because of certain changes in technology during the 20th century. So I thought we needed actually something that covers and provides this wider historical context for the emergence of geopolitics. And that's when I thought of geomodernity, um, that is really is a foundation for modern geopolitical concerns but also that we need to take into context, when people use geopolitics, that there is a cultural, social and scientific context that led to its rise. Hmm.
0: That makes a lot of sense. And in fact, kind of leads nicely to my next question, which is that obviously if we're looking at the context that leads to geopolitics, we can't start with the creation of the term. So what period does the book focus on and how did you choose these start and end dates?
1: I cover this rough period of a century from around 1850s into the mid 20th century. And the reason for that is because of these changes in technology and the rise of modern science during this period. There have always been a lot of these global connections. Before there were trains and steamships, before there were planes, you also had people bringing trade items in small boats across the Indian Ocean or uh, on camels uh, along the Silk Road. So there were these global ties, but really what happened in the 19th century is the development of these transportation networks that sped up these connections. So really around the mid-19th century, you see this speeding up of these global connections and tightening of these global networks, as well as these capitalist ties that brought different regions of the world into, uh, uh, into connection. And I ended in the mid-20th century, is that is when you see different places, including the United States, really reconceptualizing this idea of empire. In 1945, you have someone like Varnova Bush publish Science, The Endless Frontier, which became the founding document for the National Science Foundation in the United States and suddenly you see the way that people began to move the frontier and transform it into a metaphorical sense. And so that's why I focused right around this period of time when you see these things start to happen.
0: Hmm. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you for giving us that sort of foundation to then explore the time period further. Um, I'd love to start... Well, I guess not quite at the beginning of the period, but towards the beginning of it. What was going on in Hokkaido, Japan in the 1870s? You talk about it as a hub with all sorts of people and ideas coming together, maybe in ways that we wouldn't necessarily expect now. What was happening in Hokkaido in the 1870s?
1: Well, to understand the idea of the hub, I I wanted to talk a little bit about the way that I approach the structure of the book. Please. Um, so the reason why um, I started to think, it, it was very difficult because it, it turns out to be so much material. People wrote in very long treatises on frontier development, on all of these, um, both economic development and these, the, all of these works. So it became very difficult to try to organize it in some fashion. I suspect that the reason why many of us become academics is because we just love reading. So, I, <laughs> this is I read a New Books well. Network.
0: You're in yes. very good company,
1: <laughs> right? Exactly. Um, so, I've been reading a lot about these uh, new books on mushroom science, about fungal connections, and it's, it's really fascinating because some of the ways that these work. Um, you know, we just don't know, even with these uh, scientific studies about how information goes along these fungal, fungal uh, networks between uh, um, between uh, trees in the forest, for example. And then in a related collaboration with uh, some colleagues in geography, I then started to read this textbook on network science. Um, and I was like, wow, this, there's actually quite a bit of overlap uh, because the, this idea in network science is that when they started to trace the internet around 2000, researchers found that it was quite interesting because internet is not spread out evenly, but actually clustered around a few nodes this is the same idea underlying why we have influencers, for example. So the whole idea is that there are certain of these websites or these, um, these that are clustered around a few nodes. And this happens to be very similar to how people talked about these fungal networks, that you have underground connections between trees, uh, but... It's not evenly spread out, and instead it's uh, focused on a few anchor trees, old growth anchor trees, that function as important hubs for an entire forested area. So this really inspired me to think of a way of organizing the book, not in a traditionally chronological way or necessarily in a spatial way, but in a combination of the two around this idea of these hubs. And it turns out, as you asked about Hokkaido, that in the 1870s, it turns out that all kinds of people just showed up in in Hokkaido, including (laughs) Americans like Horace Capron and William S. Clark. And that from Hokkaido, then you have Japanese agronomists and scientists. This became um, a key area where they first headed and then spread out from there to as the Japanese empire uh, developed and expanded. They also spread out to Korea, to mainland China, to Taiwan, and also in efforts to encourage immigration to places like in South America, for example, like Brazil. So it was very interesting how historically, but also uh, as with these uh, fungal networks or with the internet, that it seems like that things organize around certain of these nodes.
0: Hmm. Thank you for also talking about that in terms of the structure of the book. Um, I think that that's a helpful way to kind of understand what you're doing given that we're not going to be able to get into every detail in this interview. Um, Listeners now know a little bit more of what they can get by reading the full book. Um, I wonder, I suppose I'm not going to ask about The Next Hub quite so directly, but I'm wondering if you can tell us about kind of some of the things that are being talked about in these discussions and these developments. Um, You talk about frontier discourse in a really interesting way in the book you help us understand how it fits into these people coming together. Um, to what extent can, can you, I guess, can you tell us a bit about the movement of frontier discourse, how it's being used by different of these people coming together in the hubs and to what extent we might compare it to perhaps more familiar ideological developments like discussions of fascism?
1: Yeah, um, I think that the frontier is one of those uh, ideas that people use it a lot and under the assumption that, uh, you know, if we have a conversation about it, that you and I would precisely have a uh, understanding of what you mean by frontier, what I mean by frontier. And in fact, when you look into it, that's totally not true. And of course, as with many terms, how people use it is very much relative. My frontier may actually uh, be your homeland. (laughs) Um, And so that, so we could, even though we use the same term, we could actually mean totally different things. And this is one of the, uh, one of the insights I had during this research that then made its way into the book is this realization that, you know what, uh, there are, people talk about the frontier in, sometimes in totally contradictory ways. One example is in early 20th century China, when people talked about these areas, borderland areas, the frontier, as both somehow the birthplace of Chinese civilization but also then separately as a virgin land that is ready for Han Chinese settlement. So how could this possibly be both true? And thinking about this, I realized that this is also part of the problem that we have had with discussions of fascism that oftentimes that the, there is a huge debate in Japan studies in Chinese. um, uh, Fred Wakeman had this book about, uh, that tried to argue about Chinese fascism, um, that there are certain of the similarities. Uh, People seemed very fond of these paramilitary groups, uh, seemed very fond of colored shirts. You have brown shirts, black shirts, blue shirts in China. Uh, But other than that, once you get into the ideology, it's actually quite slippery. And uh, a number of the leaders in different movements did not like each other. Uh, There were significant differences. This is why it was so hard to actually come up with, you know, exact definition of what does it mean to be fascist? But underneath the certain ideological differences, there are also some similarities. So this fondness for colored shirts, for example. And I I think that this is where you see with the frontier that it was embraced both by conservative as well as leftist movements because it was so malleable and open to interpretation. Um, And because it was... It could be refashioned into something that is uh, part of a national history that is a justification for claims to contested areas. Um, And that this took place depending on the context. This is the same time period when you see a lot of national histories being written um, that completely, you know, uh, cuts out some of these accounts, uh, some of people's and includes others in order to justify certain claims. So I thought that this was an interesting way to think about it, that it's not so much the ideology, but rather that you have this concept that could be placed into uh, the necessary political, uh to to serve the necessary political purposes
0: very much so and i mean even just familiarity with a few of those kind of Countries trying to figure this out, right? This is, as you said, exactly the time that the United States is thinking about frontiers and the West, that China's thinking about where the frontiers are, that Japan's thinking about, wait, what is Hokkaido, that Russia's trying to write new histories. Like we might we often think of these things as being so part of Chinese studies or American West studies or Russian studies. And actually, you show in the book kind of, hang on, these conversations are actually happening, they're they're doing the same thing at the same time often with a lot of the same words Uh, but there's so many there were a bunch of really interesting examples in the book that i definitely recommend to listeners of kind of as you said how these words have very slippery meanings (laughs) um and it's like hmm what exactly does that mean that doesn't really make any sense when you poke at it uh but the point that they're all sort of doing them at the same time is absolutely fascinating so thank you for sharing that with us i'd love to ask a little bit more about china in particular um I personally hadn't really been aware of the agricultural experimental zones. Um, The name, for example, to me at least, sounded like it was very sort of 20th century onwards or even CCP onwards. Uh, But it's actually a lot older than that. Can you talk us through what these were and especially their role in bridging the transition from empire to nation?
1: Yeah, um, this is... uh... Super interesting because as I said, there were a number of terms. There was a, a lot of these uh, linguist, linguistic linguistic uh, slippage and adoptions of these new terms. So the Chinese for, term for experiment, shi nian, um, is exists in classical Chinese. But as with a number of other terms, including that for science, 科学. this underwent a period of change and, uh, in the 19th century. And the way that it came about is through Japan. In Japan, uh, which before the, the uh, late 19th century primarily used classical Chinese in these uh, treatises, this term for shi showed up in a 1847 work on Introduction to Chemistry by Udagawa Yon. And then within the next couple of decades, the Japanese coined the term Shi nian Chang or Shikenjo in Japanese by adding to the two uh, characters for experiment, this locational marker, this Chang or Suo, Um, and they coined this neologism. This, in turn, was used both for a laboratory, but also for the experimental zone. In the 19th century, this happened to uh, a number of other words that had some background in classical Chinese, but was a new word that was coined in Japan and then traveled back to China. And this is what happened with the experimental zone, the Shi It moved back into China as a neologism. And this was um, something that both China and Japan adopted very quickly that in China, you see these agricultural experimental areas or zones spread across the country in all the different provinces. And I argue that this happened because there was, uh, it's not necessarily clear that it's a new thing. And it was not necessarily clear, oh, this is uh, something from Japan and therefore foreign. But because there was already considerable official interest in agriculture, There were those who exchanged texts on agriculture, who exchanged ideas among officials about ways to encourage agricultural development in the areas that they had jurisdiction. So the idea of opening these experimental stations or experimental zones uh, quickly took off and became... Uh, partly as this indigenous, you know, it it was not something that had to be resisted because it was a foreign import. And so you see something that was, uh, that quickly spread throughout China, including if you go to the Beijing Zoo today, there is an area that has a plaque that shows that this was the first national agricultural experimental station uh, established in 1906. And these then continued into the 20th century, into subsequent regimes. And uh, I think it's just absolutely vital to see this continuity between the empire and then later on, also in the 1910s, 1920s, and into the People's Republic of China, the importance of these these experimental zones.
0: You talk about in the book that it's, There's a number of these sort of things going through these transformations. Obviously, you've just told us about the agricultural experiment zones. Can you take us through how the study of geography more widely was also changing um, what it kind of meant and how popular it was?
1: Yeah, this is an enormously popular area of uh, these books that appeared both as textbooks in schools in China, uh, but also as. You know, there was a, a commercial market for atlases, for books on world geography, um, and this happened both in China and in Japan, where geography was promoted as a vital science for understanding the world, uh, the contemporary world. And uh, many of these turn of the century translations of geography of world geography came through Japan, although Chinese translators in some of these instances are quite interesting because they noted that in Japan, there is a racial hierarchy where China is below Korea and China is below that of Japan and, uh, and the West. Um, And so they would skip over that, but say, yes, this is a a very much an important area of study that would um, familiarize these new citizens with knowledge about the rest of the world.
0: Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. wrong but it's interesting to kind of see it become such a popular thing with then this idea of experimenting with agriculture trying things out in different places with the emphasis on geography and learning about different people and places to what extent did this and what did if if we tie them together right what did this have to do then with discussions around the frontier does it You talk about in the book that the frontier becomes more nationalized. You can, I suppose, see some of this on the ground with the agricultural experiments and more globalized, for example, through the study and discussion of geography. How can it be possible for the frontier to be both nationalized and globalized at the same time?
1: There is something very interesting where you see the way that people start to pay attention to how these borderland areas uh, needs to be part of this modern nation. Um, In the course of research for this project, I became convinced of the ways that ideas are so important. Um, If you go to the Chiang Kai-shek Memorial in Taipei, and there is an exhibit uh, on on, uh, his uh, belongings, And uh, included among those and very prominently displayed is his personal, his atlas of China that he apparently took with him everywhere. And if you look at the atlas, it shows China that includes the territories of Inner Mongolia, Mongolia includes the frontiers of Tibet, of Xinjiang, And this is where you suddenly see that this, you know, Zhang, even after he uh, left and went into exile in Taiwan, continued to resist calls for Mongolian independence as he saw this as the result of foreign intervention, including Soviet uh, manipulation rather than believing that there could actually be any, you know, um, true desire for independence. And this is where you start to see that globally, this was uh, widely this kind of view among certain of these political, as well as these social science um, fields, this idea that, We need to promote certain ideas of development uh, and that this will aid in national defense and in the reinforcement of the borderland areas. So it is both a reason for a justification for these establishment of national boundaries, but also simultaneously this global movement.
0: Hmm. How fascinating. Um, Obviously, this is quite tricky to kind of have both of them at the same time. There's a lot going on here. Can you tell us a bit about kind of the tensions that were made visible by these two things happening at once?
1: Well, obviously, the Mongolians did not see it the same way. Uh, Neither did the Polish people. So what what was interesting about this is that you see uh, around the world different genres of writings, promoting this idea of um, aquacultural settlement, promoting these ideas about um, um, certain types of of scientific settlement of these areas, the creation of farming communities. uh, But at the same time, Um, They completely covered up the fact that these are areas that are already have these populations, uh, existing populations, many of whom did not have the same views. So you have these very idealistic visions of what would happen with a development. So you have these official reports where people talk about, oh, we're gonna have these movie theaters and uh and schools where even adults would be educated. Uh we would completely ban the the use of opium. It would be the latest um Uh, and and the the latest scientific instruments would be used and the scientific methods used in farming and in veterinary sciences. You would cultivate better varieties of crops. Uh, And at the same time, in between the lines, there there are also some of these discussions of (laughs) the multiple ways in which, in reality, these campaigns of settlements often went completely awry because under the reality of these conditions on the ground is, of course, that that, uh, people often found the conditions, very harsh environmental conditions, or this came up frequently in both the settlement of the German East and in various Chinese campaigns to settle these borderlands um, that... They realized that one way to actually get these men, primarily male settlers, to settle down is to have women uh, to, who would, uh, you know, tie down these settlers so that they don't run away. Uh, but at the same time, certainly in Germany, they found that in a rapidly urbanizing and modernizing country, very few women found the prospect of heading to the farms and bearing 20 children uh, to promote uh, German, ethnic German settlement uh, to be an attractive option. So, you definitely see all the ways that you have this discourse level, you have these regulations, you have this promotion of these various campaigns. And then on the ground, the reality of it is uh, often much different from what was actually promoted.
0: That's such an evocative example. I'm 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 glad you explained kind of the concept and the example because I think it just makes it really clear uh what exactly those tensions can look like in theory and practice. Um to tie another two of our ideas together, um Obviously, these discussions about territory and frontiers, we've talked about um, being different in theory and practice within a country, uh, being slippery in terms of definition uh, within kind of discussions. What about when those ideas kind of are directly being translated and transmitted across borders when someone from one country goes to another and suddenly they realize that the word they might be using doesn't actually mean that? What did you find about this sort of translation and movement of these ideas across borders?
1: Yeah, one of the things or one of the critiques of global history is that uh, it seems to flatten things out, Uh, that we have something like uh, capitalism make its way around the world or that uh, it focuses on certain commodities that moves along these uh, networks around the world. And what I found with these ideas about a frontier and about development was that there was no flattening at all because often uh, there was a very conscious choice to use one set of words in English and then when people were writing for domestic audiences, they would choose a, a completely different term. So one example that I talk about in the book is this Chinese twinken, um, which is actually mostly came into use in the 20th century. But even uh, many Chinese do not know that. i said, oh, that's always been around. Actually, that is, uh, that's not true. And I track some of these 20th century agronomists who helped to... Uh, make this into this uh, so widely accepted that people no longer realize that its history was erased, this idea of Twenken. So I, I look at the agronomist Tang Qiyu. He received his PhD from Cornell University in 1924. And if you look at his English uh, dissertation from 1924, he talks about interli- colonization. In, uh, and he talks about how because racism closed off areas of the Americas to Chinese settlers, the better option is for the excess population in China to settle its own frontiers. When he gets back to China in, l- later on in the 1920s, he starts to join these, uh, these w- groups that study frontier settlement and he starts to write about Twinken. So by the late 1940s, when he writes a book about historical examples of Tuengken, suddenly this word uh, Tuengken has become completely uh, nationalized and nativized into something that has always been around in Chinese history since the early Han dynasty. Which is not true because early Han Dynasty, that word, the term that was used is Tuintian, the use of military to settle the frontiers. So you see something that um, is in the translation. Uh, that completely changes the 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 meaning and tenor of it, takes it out of certain contexts and places into different ones, adapting and adopting these ideas so that it suddenly looks like it's something that has always been around, rather than what is the result of influences uh, from overseas.
0: Hmm. Absolutely fascinating! Again, to link up all these different pieces. Moving to the second part of the time period um, that you discuss, a kind of a particular time stamp, I suppose, that I'd love to ask you about. Um, as we come to the kind of creation of geopolitics as a concept, how did World War I create the conditions for what you call, quote, the ascendance of geopolitics as the new science of the state?
1: Well, one thing about World War I is that I think traditionally people see it as a marker um, in the transition between empire and nation state, simply because of the way that around the time of this conflict, you see a number of empires collapse. So by the end of the war, the Ottomans are gone, the Austro-Hungarians collapsed, uh, Russia collapsed, The German Empire collapsed. Uh, And it seems to indicate that here is this new age. And also because of this Wilsonian rhetoric of national self-determination. But digging further into it, that's actually completely not true in that the war had also demonstrated the importance of having territorial possession of resources. Because what you see during the war is that there were severe material shortages in Germany. There was so many problems because of the blockade that you also see people realizing in the post-war period that yes, you absolutely need this territory. So in one of the books that I, I examine, um, the geographer, American geographer Isaiah Bowman wrote this book, The New World. And he, in the book, he talks about the different empires and these different territories. And the challenge for both Austria and Hungary after the collapse of empire is that they were both now suddenly cut off from, from important resources for industries this would mean that these are countries that will now be reduced to economic irrelevance. And this is where I don't think it is a coincidence at all that suddenly you see this geopolitics becoming very prominent in interwar discussions because of part of the focus of geopolitics, again, very, uh, du- very nebulously defined, is this... Uh, focus on resources, natural resources. And so you see different geographers from countries from Germany, from China, from Japan, from the United States, all fo- all honing in on this territorial possession of resources. And I think this is where it connects to World War One and the kind of uh, the material shortages created by the war. Hmm.
0: Speaking of material shortages, of course, that's um, one of the most common things known about German history in the early 20th century, especially right after World War One. And of course, in a number of ways is also relevant to the story of China in the 20th century. Um, but it goes, the similarities go beyond that. Could you tell us a bit about what similarities and also crucially, of course, differences we see, not just in terms of geopolitics, but also in terms of geo-modernity in Germany and
1: China? Yeah, it was one of those uh, incredible things I saw in, uh, in my research. So at the end of World War I, there was a plan floated about in the German government, The idea is that now that they have this vast stretch of uh, territories to the east that they had won in the settlement with uh, Russia, Uh, how do you settle these lands? Well, why not use these uh, military veterans to occupy and to farm these areas? During the World War II in East Asia, we see similar ideas come up in China uh, with the government, on the Chongqing government, but also in the Wang Jingwei public government, that we could, that they could use these veterans, uh, and you know, it, it really gets into the weeds. You know, to be lightly disabled, so obviously you know you could maybe miss one arm, but not both, because you need to farm. And I thought, you know, what is this going on? Why do you see, and one reason I think you see this is because of this professionalization of the social sciences and the sciences and the way that science is central to geomodernity. During this period of roughly a century from the mid-19th century to the mid-20th century, you see so many of these international congresses, you see so many of these conferences. So various figures that I talk about in my book, they organize and attend international agronomy conferences. They attend the International Congress of Geography, which is still going on. And um, so you kind of see the way that how certain ideas make their way through these connections and then play out um, in somewhat different formats, but with the same underlying ideas in both Germany and in China.
0: See, this goes back to what I was saying at the beginning, tying things together that we might not usually do, (laughs) um, which is very much, I think, what you're doing throughout the book. Um, Before I finish off our conversation about the book and ask what you might be working on next, is there anything else about the book that you think it's important
1: we add in well i do think it's uh i want to emphasize the way that i approach this is also very much by tracing the individual lives and i think it's important to emphasize this because when we talk about geopolitics when we talk about these big ideas about these networks what is often lost is that these have real life consequences. <laughs> we are talking about refugees. We're talking about people who get plopped down in the middle of nowhere uh, and uh, in terrifying circumstances are told, are given these ideas that they would, you know, that they would reclaim these wastelands. And in fact, find it in, nearly impossible to do in these harsh conditions. We're also talking about at the level of these social scientists. Many of them wrote these books, many many of them imagined that they were influencing world events, and then quickly found out that, yes, certain political leaders certainly used their ideas, but when push comes to shove, these are geographers in particular had very tragic endings uh, because of the way that they were used and then discarded. By these larger uh, forces. So I do think it's important to, uh, to say that I look at these individuals' lives as they cross, and this is also a way that I um, go beyond these national boundaries because a number of these figures that I talk about in the book, they're not exactly unknown, but they have mostly been talked about in certain national histories Um, And so in these containers, and then it's only when you actually just follow them for their their lives that you see that, oh, wow, they are like all over the place and that these ideas um, had much bigger influence than just within these national contexts.
0: Thank you for adding that in. I think it's a really helpful um, thing to make our listeners aware of um, and hopefully quite intriguing for them to then want to read the whole book and get all the details. Before they run off, however, to do that, um, I do have one final question for you, which is um, now that this book is over, is there anything you might be working on now or next, whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's on this exact topic that you'd like to share with us?
1: Yeah, so I have been very intrigued by this idea. So this uh, within, so there you see so many of these discussions about uh, escalating geopolitical tensions between US and China. And particularly in areas of science and technology. So recently, I've become very interested in uh, an earlier period of attention in the 1940s, before 1949 and the communist takeover, looking at Chinese scientists. And this really struck me as a fascinating area of research because of the calculation that went into their thinking. Do you return to China? Do you stay abroad as exiles? And these are decisions that would um, essentially affect the rest of their lives. And this also came to mind because and talking to so many people, we talk about this experience of the pandemic and how in March 2020, all of us went home and we thought, oh, you know, uh, we'll have a lockdown for a month or, or, two, <laughs> or two weeks and then we'll go back to our lives. Um, and, then, and, and <laughs> you know, sadly, we all know that that did not turn out to be the case. And I thought about these Chinese scientists and the way that they made their decisions in the 1940s and how um, it it would, you know, who would know that uh, once they made the decision that it would basically be for the rest of their lives
0: fascinating thing to explore next. I look forward to seeing what comes of that. Um, Thank you for sharing that preview. But of course, while you are working on your next project, uh, listeners can read the book we've been discussing, Birth of the Geopolitical Age, Global Frontiers, and the Making of Modern China, published by Stanford University Press. Shellen, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast.
1: Thank you.